0: Welcome, one and all. This is Robert Rogers. I am the founder of Parkinson's Recovery in 2004. So we've been around now for quite a few years helping individuals discover options that can help them find relief from whatever symptoms that they might be experiencing that are associated with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. It is my very high honor today to have as my guest naturopath John Coleman I've known John now really since we founded Parkinson's Recovery many many years ago and for those of you that are not familiar with John's background He really, to my research, and I've been working on this for a very long time, is really the first individual who began to suffer some very debilitating symptoms associated with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease back in the mid-1990s and just said, I'm going to figure out a way to reverse these symptoms and get well. And so John, over a period of three or three and a half years, began to experiment with a number of different approaches. And by George, he was able to discover ways that he could personally reverse all of the symptoms that he actually experienced. So he is a true leader, a mentor for all of us in being able to understand what causes the symptoms of Parkinson's and the kinds of steps we can take to address those causes. So, the reason for my being able to recruit John on the radio show today is that he has just published a new book, a follow-up from his original book, Stop Parkin' and Start Living," and we're going to talk with him about his new book titled, Rethinking Parkinson's Disease. So, John, from the bottom of my heart and speaking for the many thousands of listeners of Parkinson's Recovery Radio, thank you so much for taking the time to be a guest on the radio show today.
1: It's always great to be here, Robert. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I was just thinking about our first meeting a couple of days ago and on Tuesday of this week, it will be 14 years since we first met in Tacoma. So we've, we've had a long friendship.
0: We have had a long friendship, John. And you have certainly had a big influence on my own personal thinking about what it takes to heal from these neurological challenges. So we want to focus on your new book, John. Why did you choose to write this new book, which is titled Rethinking Parkinson's Disease?
1: Well, I was thinking about uh, three and a half years ago that it was time to update Stop Parkinson, and Start Living which has been a a great help, I think, to many people, but certainly sold around the world. And I was quite proud of what I'd achieved. But I realised that with my research over the last few years, uh, that there's been updates in knowledge from both Western allopathic medicine, um, medical science from complementary medicine uh, and developments in product available and approaches to dealing with particular symptoms. So I thought, well, I'll update, stop Parkin. But when I started doing that and reading through my manuscript, I realized that really I had to start again. So um, just over three years ago, I sat down and started my first page and developed the first chapter and it's grown from there like a box of mushrooms
0: you are a published author of of course stop parking and start living which has been so well received was it an easy task to write rethinking Parkinson's disease
1: no it wasn't easy it never is easy to write a book um, and I realized when I started that this was going to be a mammoth task because there was so much I needed to look at and so much to cover. So I set myself into a routine of getting up earlier than usual and sitting in front of my computer for two hours every morning, whether I could actually put things on the screen or not I just sat there and I researched and I read and I wrote and uh, it took about two years to complete the manuscript and then it's taken another 12 months since that completion to have it edited reformatted etc and as of about uh, a week ago it's at the printer so it's uh A Grand Journey, but it is now reaching its completion.
0: John, what is new in this book? Well, what I
1: originally thought uh, many years ago when I first researched and wrote *Stop Parkin was that most neurological disorders came from trauma, and I focused on that. I also worked on toxins, of course, and you're aware of my uh, emphasis on on gut function and detox programs. But in those intervening years, of course, I came across um, serendipitously this nasty disease we call Lyme disease. And that was because My wife, Nicole, whom you've met, was diagnosed with Lyme disease. And I started looking at what symptoms were related to that infection and then looked at symptoms related to other infections. So I realised that some diagnoses of Parkinson's were in fact driven by stealth infections I also looked again at toxins and knowledge about that and gained more insights into trauma and long term stress and looked at research by people like Professor Bruce McEwen and, and others in his field of epidemiology so there's a lot more about these three etiological pathways, trauma, toxins and infection in rethinking Parkinson's. But then I've also included a lot more about how we can reverse it. Things we can do ourselves and the evidence supporting those activities. So evidence from both Western allopathic sources and complementary sources. So there's some of the same, but a lot more of it, and the new knowledge that we've been able to gain about what we can do about reversing neuro disorders
0: Is the wealth of information in rethinking Parkinson's disease from your own clinical experience, or is there other research as well?
1: My clinical experience has always been the trigger uh, for looking at new symptoms, new pictures, new ways to reverse the illness um, process. However, once I clue or an inkling in clinic, then I go looking at what research there is out there to support that. So uh, PubMed became you know a valuable bedside reading. But there's lots of research on, in a variety of journals. I subscribe to a number of online medical journals and neurological journals. Also to a couple of science research journals that uh, cover biology as well as neurology and um, medical research so when when you actually read um, Rethinking Parkinson's you'll see that the references range from um, conservative medical research papers through to some of the um, books and studies that are not acceptable at all to mainstream medicine simply because they do their studies and they look at things in a different way. So there's a very broad range of research included in this book.
0: John Coleman, why is it important to understand the causes of a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease?
1: It's too easy, I think, to focus on suppressing symptoms. And suppressing symptoms makes us more comfortable, but fails in the long term because the illness process continues. If we understand what has caused those symptoms to develop, then we can work on that cause and actually become well. So when I was ill and of course a lot of my journey was error and trial rather than trial and error, but I, over those years, that just working with symptoms wasn't any good. I was very, very ill. But when I found that I had an enormous toxic load from years of living badly, bad food choices, working in a copper mine, working in a photo processing laboratory with all those chemicals, um, smoking, all that sort of stuff, and also with unresolved issues around childhood trauma. Um, I realised that This is where I needed to work. I needed to repair the damage caused by those causes. And the result was I no longer have any symptoms. So we know that um, if we have a pain in our foot, for instance, we can treat that pain. We can use analgesics, you know, put on creams, etc., But if that pain is caused by having a nail in our foot, we're not going to succeed unless we actually remove that nail. So what we need to do when we diagnose with Parkinson's is find out what our nail in the foot is and then reverse that.
0: I am your host of Parkinson's Recovery Radio, Robert Rogers. My guest today is naturopath John Coleman author of the new book, which has just been released, Rethinking Parkinson's Disease. John, is there a cure for Parkinson's disease?
1: No, there's not.
0: Do you think we are close to discovering a cure?
1: Well, Robert, I actually don't believe there is a cure for any disease or any person um, the things that we can as humans cure are pigs when we turn them into bacon or ham uh, concrete when we make a driveway or a pathway uh, leather to make a belt or a jacket or a pair of shoes so these are things that we cure and turn into something else we we keep seeking for a cure, but because there are a multiple number of pathways and causes that lead our body to develop symptoms of Parkinson's, every time we make an attempt to quote unquote cure this process, we cause other challenges. So. I'm, my belief is that we have to work out for each individual person what the pathway has been that has led them into illness. And that isn't generally as difficult as it sounds. But once we do that, then we can work together to reverse those causes.
0: Today, you have no symptoms associated with Parkinson's. Many people will wonder, well, how ill were you in the mid-1990s when you were experiencing the symptoms? Was it really that bad?
1: Well, I was what we call uh, stage four on the Herne and yar scale. So for those not familiar with the Herne and yar scale, there are essentially six stages. There's stage zero, which means there are no symptoms. Stage one, when the symptoms are just beginning to be noticeable, usually on one side or one limb. Stage two, when it's starting to spread and becoming annoying. Stage three, when life becomes pretty difficult and it's much harder to help ourselves. Stage four, where we are really debilitated and it's extremely difficult to function and stage 5 where we need um, full time care so I I was um, pretty far down that track on the other major scale the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale uh, which has a total score of 199 um, in all areas and 40 is considered a serious score on UPDRS and my score was 127. So yeah, if I'd been a horse in 1995, you would have put me down
0: With no symptoms uh, now associated with Parkinson's disease have you been cured?
1: No, I haven't been cured and I want to make this very clear. In technical terms, I guess I still have Parkinson's disease. I don't have the symptoms. What I've done is taken away the um, uh, irritations, the nails that cause my body to create symptoms so that I'll pay attention to it. So I haven't been cured, I have recovered my health. I've gone searching for the treasure of health and I've dived down into the deep oceans and I've climbed mountains and I've dug holes and I've found that treasure of health. I need to continue to live uh, in a wellness Situation. I need to
0: continue
1: to stick to the rules that I imposed on myself all those years ago, 25 years ago, and that I also advise my patients to stick to. I need to live a life of wellness in order to remain well.
0: John Coleman, what is the number one or most significant attribute of persons who recover their health?
1: The number one thing is getting our head right. So that is we must be totally determined to make changes. We must be dedicated to those changes. We must be dedicated to a way of life that will enable our body to respond with wellness rather than illness so a very wise woman once said to me if you always do what you've always done you'll always get what you've always got so if we don't make changes continue to be ill so we have to be totally committed to make changes to our food, our drink, our lifestyle, our relationships. Um, We need to be dedicated to taking what supplements that we may need as determined by our ideological pathways. And we need to be determined to continue that for the rest of our life. And that's what people who've recovered have done. They've made their mind up, they've got their head right, and they've said, This is the way we live from now on because we want to be well.
0: For someone with not a lot of money or resources and who is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, where can they start to get well?
1: Well, the obvious place, I guess, Robert, is to buy my book um, because that's got a lot of information. So, In Australia, it retails at $39.99. That's a very inexpensive start to get the information that some of which you'll get from doctors and a lot you won't process. And you know the best place to start is with food because for most of us who become unwell, we're not eating right. We're not giving our body the nutrients that we need. So let's start with food. Then let's look at what we're drinking. Are we drinking caffeine that triggers a fight-flight-freeze response? Are we drinking soda or too much alcohol? So let's look at the food and drink because we can change that. We have total control. And then there are a number of strategies that we can um, engage in, such as meditation, self-love, laughter, singing, dancing, all these things that are gaining more and more traction in the research um, industry or research community as helping to reverse chronic illness. So get the information. Yes, there's a lot of information online And some of it is good and a lot of it is. So I think find, hopefully I'm an author that people trust. If I am, get the book, read it and start from step one. And I've got a little um, chapter or section in the beginning of the book saying, here's how to use this book. Here's where to start. Here's the next step. Here's where you move to from there. So it's not rocket science, uh, but it's good science. And you can, without a lot of money, start to improve your health.
0: So can Rethinking Parkinson's Disease, your new book, be used as a self-help book?
1: Well, that was the intention. Um, when I wrote it, as it was with with, uh, Stop Parkinson's, Start Living. But Rethinking Parkinson's Disease is definitely a self-help book, but it's expanded and it's now become a reference also for healthcare practitioners, whether they be medical practitioners with open minds or complementary medical practitioners. So, yes, it's self-help, but it's also a book that you can discuss with your healthcare practitioner and say, look, I read this in John Coleman's book, and hopefully the practitioner will also have a copy and say, well, yes, I read that too. So let's talk about this and get these strategies in place.
0: A surprising number of listeners of Parkinson's Recovery Radio are naturopaths and doctors and other medical professionals. Is there much information for those types of individuals and healthcare practitioners?
1: Uh, Yes, there is. Um, All of it really is, is important to practitioners, but there are some sections specifically written for practitioners, but frankly, in all my exploration of colleges and medical schools around the world, I haven't found any college that teaches the ideological pathways that lead to Parkinson's. They they teach pathways um, in, in the good. Complementary medicine colleges, nat- colleges of naturopathy, etc. They teach the gut brain function. So there's a lot of good information taught in colleges, but they're not teaching the etiological pathways, the originating causes, and how those etiological pathways convert into the symptoms of Parkinson's. So there's a lot of information that I found extremely valuable as a naturopath when I discovered it. And I think that, look, a lot of naturopaths have already said to me, yes, they're looking forward to it. They, they've they got value from Scott Parkin and they're looking forward to that expanded information. Um, from Rethinking Parkinson, So I think it's an inexpensive and a valuable resource on the shelves of any practitioner.
0: I sent out a request to listeners of Parkinson's Recovery Radio to submit their questions, and so I have a number that I'd like to be able to ask you. What are your thoughts on dental amalgam removal?
1: Okay, um, amalgams have been a a contentious uh, subject for many, many years. I I remember discussing this with a number of integrative doctors back in 1980 when I had a health food store and the um, fashion, if you like, of removing amalgams was becoming um, quite uh, popular then. Now, There's no doubt that amalgams contain mercury and aluminium and a number of toxic metals. But my thought is that if they are stable and if the tooth is healthy other, other than the amalgam, we leave it where it is. I've talked to a number of holistic dentists and dental specialists who claim to be able to remove the amalgams with no impact. However, they can't entirely stop the... expression of mercury vapours and aluminium vapours up through the root of the tooth into the bloodstream so our mouth and that tooth root is very vascular so it can easily absorb toxins and when we heat or drill that amalgam there some fumes are going to be expressed so my advice is that leave them where they are Unless the tooth needs repair, in which case get that uh, filling replaced by something a bit less toxic, but do it at need, one by one, rather than this whole traumatic matter of of having twenty amalgams all removed and replaced at once, which is, you know, really difficult sitting in a chair all that time particularly if there's some tremor or other discomfort and the trauma to your wallet is also quite extreme
0: John what is your opinion about drinking coffee and consuming alcohol
1: okay um, I put a little note here when I saw that question what about smoking now uh <laughs> Okay, coffee is touted as being the prevention and cure for just about everything. Um, And I suspect there's a lot of coffee industry money going into that research. It's only about uh, 40 years ago that there was research, which was apparently good, telling us that smoking cigarettes prevented Parkinson's. And we know what smoking leads to, so you know my thought was, well, maybe smoking you don't you don't get Parkinson's because you die of lung cancer first, but it turns out that a lot of my patients, including myself, were heavy smokers um, Now, as far as coffee's concerned, we know that the caffeine in coffee stimulates the adrenal glands as if we are in danger. That's why it makes us feel good. The fight-flight-freeze response increases our output of adrenaline, cortisol, aldosterone, testosterone, and noradrenaline. If you're in the US, adrenaline is epinephrine, so epinephrine and norepinephrine. And that gives us this Adrenaline high that we call it or the runner's high. So it's a stimulant. And because of that, it can actually briefly reduce some symptoms. Now caused some people who haven't looked beyond the symptoms into um, saying, well, it makes people better. If you drink coffee, it makes people better. Or if you drink coffee, you're less likely to develop Parkinson's. Now, the fact is that about 95% of my Parkinson's patients were coffee drinkers. All right, 95% were coffee drinkers. It didn't stop any of them, including me, from developing Parkinson's. So there's a big challenge in that research. So we know that trauma and uh, high stress is a basic etiological pathway leading to Parkinson's and coffee and caffeinated teas while they're high in antioxidants are also caffeinated and have talents in them which stimulate adrenals and stimulate an artificial fight flight freeze response. A much healthier alternative is something like Ruibos tea Uh, uh, R-O-O-I-B-O-S, South African red bush tea, which has got a greater antioxidant activity than coffee or green or black or white tea and has no adverse effects at all. And In fact, I just finished a lovely cup of that uh, during the first part of this uh, interview. Now, alcohol... Alcohol can be a social interaction in really small quantities. It has a slightly calming effect. However, if we exceed a very small quantity, we start to cause dehydration, particularly in our nervous system, in our brain. So what I call a small quantity would be one small drink three times a week, you know, a shot of whiskey, a small beer, uh, a glass of wine three times a week, Um, that's acceptable, social, perhaps a little calming, once we get beyond that we're starting to cause dehydration and that is damaging.
0: John Coleman,
1: what about dyskinesia? Yes, I'm asked a lot about dyskinesia. What we need to realize is that the most most dyskinesia is caused by medication. All right. Now people in late stage Parkinson's, if they are not treated with medication will eventually develop dystinesia, but everyone is treated this days once they're diagnosed and over long term or with high dose Parkinson's medication, whether that be levodopa, dopamine agonist, Compt inhibitors, MAOB inhibitors, we will develop dyskinesia because of the action. the medication so how do we eliminate dyskinesia we eliminate medication and we can't just stop medication obviously so I'm not encouraging anyone just to give up Parkinson's medication because it plays a valid role in the treatment of Parkinson's what I'm saying is to remove dyskinesia we need to undertake all our health giving strategies that make us well enough so that we no longer need medication and when we do reach that stage we have to remember to reduce medication extremely slowly, very slowly we withdraw that support too quickly we become deficient in what the Medication is doing for us. Remember, you know, levodopa medication is a supplement for levodopa, and that reduces our endogenous production of levodopa. So, to reduce levodopa medication, we must be supporting our body's own production of levodopa, and then very slowly reduce the medication. The same with dopamine agonists that's artificially stimulating D1, D2 and occasionally D3 um, dopamine receptors now we can't just suddenly withdraw that stimulation we need to do it slowly we need to um, support our body so that we're actually using our own means to stimulate those receptors. So in short, because I've rambled on here, but in short, if we're going to reduce dyskinesia, we have to become well enough to slowly reduce medication and then dyskinesia will be reduced and eventually go away altogether.
0: This is your host, Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is naturopath John Coleman, who is the author of a book just released, Rethinking Parkinson's Disease. John, this listener has three topics that they wanted to know a little bit more about, and that is about the use of peptides, NAD+, and ketamine sessions.
1: Okay. um, What we're really talking about here is uh, food and drugs okay so peptides are small proteins and we need a lot of protein um, to rebuild to create neurotransmitters so all our neurotransmitters are made from amino acids and we get amino acids by eating good quality protein now, is it useful to supplement tides and or protein? Well, yes and no. Uh, in our first priority must be consuming food that is good for us, that creates wellness. And that includes a lot of vegetables, a very wide variety of vegetables, some fruit, and in protein foods like eggs, quinoa, fish, organic meats and chicken, turkey, um, buckwheat, avocado. So that's where we should be getting our peptides and proteins, ideally. I have not seen particularly good results from those people using um, heavy-duty peptide protein or amino acid supplementation. There is, however, a case for uh, protein smoothies for those who are um, battling to consume sufficient food and a wide enough variety, and I've certainly used that. So good quality pea-based protein powder with some other foods and we include things like raw cacao um, maybe some creatine uh, banana green banana flour. if there's constipation or we can add eggs or whatever even berries etc to make a nice protein a, a nice smoothie that boosts protein I see that as useful if we can't get that nourishment from our food but I don't see it as a focused um, strategy. Now, NAD, niacinamide, or the version of it, um, that's been talked about in research for a long, long time. Uh, Again, in in the results I've seen, I I find are equivocal. Um, Certainly, it's useful to be supplementing with activated B-complex and a number of other supplements, vitamin C, certainly. We can't absorb anything without sufficient vitamin C in our system. And, and I explain that in Rethinking Parkinson's Disease. But uh, again, with these focused, single, heavy-duty supplements, I've not seen good results, um, other than occasional symptom relief for a short period of time. Now, ketamine ketamine is a a drug that's used for sedation. That was the word I'm looking for, sedative. Um, It's a sedative. It's been used legally and illegally for many, many years. To slow people down, to sedate them. Now, ketamine for a person with Parkinson's may actually reduce uh, tremor and excess movement, inappropriate movement for some time. However, there are very significant adverse effects attached to ketamine. And frankly, the adverse effects are worse than the disorder. So I would avoid it.
0: Here's an unusual question. What causes apraxia of the outer lid? And the questioner is asking, due to Parkinson, is there anything that could be done about it?
1: Um, well, yes, the simple answer is get well. Um, apraxia is, is a very complex syndrome Um, now yes it can be associated with some of the intermediate symptoms of Parkinson's in that some apraxia is caused by a dysfunction in the um, basal ganglia of the striatum nigra so that's associated with some of the symptoms of Parkinson's too However, it can also be associated with blepharospasm and that's, you know, not well understood and it's not uncommon. Um, It is also association with the um, corticothalamic basal ganglion and focal cranial nerves. So um, it's not necessarily caused by Parkinson's, it may be associated with what has caused the Parkinson's symptoms in that particular person. And it's certainly, I had a unilateral apraxia or ptosis in my right eye, which was one of the clues to what was going on in my in my brain. I'm saying there's definitely a neurological function causing these symptoms. So um, this, it's also uh, the brain stem can be uh, involved. So if there's been a head injury at any stage or if there is uh, an infection which is damaging the brain. So some of the stealth infections like Borrelia, Becdorferi, uh, whether it be the actual Lyme disease or Borrelia garinii or Queenslandica or Alexandria omniomotii, can all affect cranial nerves and that can cause fracture. So it's really important to take a note of these symptoms and then look at what the background is, what's actually causing this plethora of symptoms what is the background you know um are there periods of stress either during pregnancy or or in childhood or in teenage years and what were those stresses what were those traumas has there been contact with toxic chemicals and we all contact toxic chemicals of course but has there been significant contact with glyphosate lead, mercury, arsenic, aluminium, etc. And is is it likely that there is an infection? And there's a simple assessment tool in rethinking Parkinson's disease that helps uh, a patient decide whether they may have been affected by an infection. It's not a diagnostic tool to say it's this infection, but it's an assessment to say, well, look, I've achieved this score, and so that means I really need to seek out more information from a healthcare practitioner because it looks as if I could be affected by a stealth infection. And many of those infections affect cranial nerves, which can cause apraxia. So I'm sorry it's not a simple answer, Uh, the, The best answer is Go on the journey of wellness And apraxia will disappear
0: John Coleman You've discussed the importance of diet And made some very specific recommendations On good foods to eat Could you summarize your recommendations For a good diet
1: Absolutely So I like to I like to Discuss it in terms of food choices rather than diet, although we do use the term a lot. So it's food going in. So what we need to emphasise are the foods I mentioned before. So lots of vegetables, fruit, uh, good, good protein. So quinoa, eggs, fish, um, lean organic meat, chicken, etc. Pasture raised. Um, we can add legumes, mushrooms to those as good foods now what we need to avoid are foods that either increase our risk of neuro disorders or inhibit our ability to get well so those include things like grains now there's a lot of confusion about what is a grain and what is a seed so I In terms of my discussion, I'm not going to get into the philosophical naming of uh, plant foods, but in terms of our discussion, grains are the seeds from grasses. So that's wheat, barley, oats, rye, rice, um, sorghum, millet, corn. And the seeds what some people call pseudo grains or even ancient grains are, are seeds that grow on bushes. So buckwheat, quinoa, which is an excellent one, amaranth. So the difference is that grains have uh, lectins that are inflammatory in their nervous system. Seeds and legumes have lectins. In fact, most plant foods do have lectins but they're not inflammatory and they can be good for us so that's the difference Um, we need to avoid animal dairy products because milk, cream, cheese yogurt from cows, sheep and goats cause inflammation, they rob our body of calcium so surprise, surprise people consuming the highest rates of animal dairy products have the highest rates of osteoporosis. However, consuming dairy also increases our risk of Parkinson's by up to 60%. That's a lot. Increases our risk of dementia and cancers of the breast, uterus, ovaries and prostate. So it's good to avoid dairy. Now, we can use, and I encourage you use, of organic butter and organic ghee because we must avoid all those nasty margarines that are loaded with trans fatty acids that are quite toxic to us, plus colourings, etc. We need to avoid um, caffeine. As I've explained, sugars, of course, refined sugars, we need to avoid that. That's very inflammatory. Um, Now, I really like to use some herbs and spices in my cooking, but we avoid really highly spiced foods, the sort that makes you sweat, um, because they affect the villi in our gut. So the really hot spices. So it's nice to have that bit of warmth and flavour and variety, but avoid the really hot spices. And processed foods. Look, always read the labels on packaged foods. Three quarters of the food in our supermarket should not be called food. It's simply processed stuff, put in fancy packages to make us buy it. We should be shopping in the Well, even best in the small shops that sell nice, fresh, organic fruit and veg and the local butcher. But if we're shopping in supermarkets, shop in the aisles where those fresh fruit is and the fresh vegetables and all those lovely and the fresh meat. Now, do I buy some packaged foods? Yes, I do. I buy um, sometimes some gluten-free, organic Pizza bases, if I'm too lazy to make my own, so occasionally buy that. We buy some packets of cacao and we buy some packets of buckwheat flour, um, um, tapioca flour, coconut flour, etc. So, yes, we buy those packaged foods, but in general, you know, we should eat fresh and local and lots of variety in color.
0: John, how can people purchase your book?
1: Okay, there are a number of ways. Firstly, they can go to my website, which is returntostillness.com.au, and uh, there's an online purchase there. Uh, I've just found that it is also available on... Amazon, um, actually one of my um, uh, inquirers, Bob, found that. Thank you very much, and that's uh, a great way for people outside of Australia to purchase. Um, it's um, so look on Amazon. It's also available for people in Australia. They can call my office on zero three five four two nine. 1737 and we'll take all your details so it's on special now in Australia at $25 plus postage until the 31st of October and then from the 1st of November it will go to its full retail price of $39.99 so yep quite a number of ways to buy it.
0: John Coleman, as people reflect back on this interview and this discussion, which has been most fascinating and illuminating one week from to now, what would you most like people to remember about this interview?
1: To remember that they can get well, and 80% of getting well is up to you as the individual. Find the causes of your symptoms and then develop strategies to reverse those and you can live well like I do and Lionel and Roger and Franca and Elizabeth and Marg and all those other people who have done it. You can get well.
0: John Coleman, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and the bottoms of the hearts of the many thousands of listeners of Parkinson's Recovery Radio for taking the time today to be a guest on Parkinson's Recovery Radio.
1: It's been a great pleasure, Robert. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to catching up with you again in the future.
0: As do I, John. And that's what's happening here on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the, men are, all the women are handsome, and all of the children are truly loved. Know that by the simple fact that you've listened to this amazing and illuminating interview with naturopath John Coleman, that indeed you are traveling down the road to recovery successfully. Thank you so much for being a part of the Parkinson's Recovery community and joining the community of individuals who know in their heart, mind, and souls that recovery is indeed possible once you set the intention to make it so. I'm Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery, and your host today. Please take the time to listen to the many hundreds of radio show interviews that we have done over the past decade. You'll find some fascinating suggestions and insights about how you, too, can find ways to reverse whatever symptoms you currently experience. Thank you so much for joining us today. Goodbye.